Now, another aspect where I think with all of the new technologies we can enable to happen much more quickly is the whole aspect of knowing the right people. For women and underrepresented groups who have all of these other outside of work obligations as a primary caretaker, you're just not given that level of serendipity into running into who might be able to give you your next job or who might be able to vouch for you. So now with all these technologies where it's been normalized, it's very normal to say, "Hey, we can't meet in person, but let's hop on a video call. Let's Zoom." Or even now more and more of these mentoring platforms or AI assisted platforms that can match you with someone that you might, for example, be able to learn a lot from who's maybe 2 or 3 years more senior in, in their career than in yours, which is tangible so they can give you tactical advice to help you advance. Well, that's going to really add oil to the flywheel that can help accelerate the careers for these people. Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We are coming to you from Seattle where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories and trends in the news. My guest this week is Nancy Wang, a technology product and engineering executive, advisor, and investor. A former Amazon Web Services general manager and former Google lead product manager, she's a venture partner at Felicis Ventures, where she invests in early stage startups in cybersecurity, enterprise infrastructure, and business-to-business software as a service. She's also founder and board chair of the nonprofit Advancing Women in Tech, and she's a contributor to Forbes among other publications. It's great to have you here, Nancy. Thanks so much, Todd, for having me. We've got you here in the office, which is not always a common occurrence on podcasts these days. It's nice to be looking across the table at you. Absolutely. You know, in this age where everyone's talking about like AI, chatbots, agents, and what have you, you know, you you really hanker for some of that human to human interaction. So, I'm super happy that we can make this work and we're looking at each other's eyes as we're doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So, it's funny you should mention AI chatbots because my first question, my opening question before we get into some of your background and some of the things that you're seeing in the market was actually how AI has changed things and specifically the rise of generative AI have changed things for you and how you've seen them play out in your work and life and in the industry over the past year. Just yeah. be curious for your thoughts. I know it certainly plays into some of your investing and some of the work you're doing with advancing women in tech, but just generally, what have you seen in AI over the past year personally? Yeah, AI's been around for a few decades now and we've learned, you know, heard about it in many different forms like classical classifiers, you know, machine learning, algorithms, deep learning, it goes on. But really I think what's net new is this thing called generative AI, which really wasn't a thing until frankly, I remember last reinvent, it just really kind of came onto the scene. And if you look at it from a startup perspective, I think the really compelling thing is prior to Gen AI really becoming a household name, you had a lot of AI for X, right? Probably the best example I can bring up is, you know, Jasper was a hot service that everyone was using to write their social media posts. But certainly after ChatGPT came on, which is the chatbot that is attached to OpenAI's foundational model GPT, you can essentially have ChatGPT do a lot of the same things. And so you think about thin wrappers as I call them, essentially AI for maybe travel or AI for telling you what the weather is. ChatGPT now has made that sort of obsolete by itself. So 
As an investor, we need to take then one step further, which is not just simply stopping at using AI to answer questions, but rather how can we leverage AI to do longer term planning or complex tasks that oftentimes takes many humans to do or cannot even be satisfactorily performed, even if you have a big team. So let me talk about an example. Recently in the whole security realm, we've heard a lot of AI security, which is securing what the model does. And there's some nuances there, whether you secure the foundational model itself or you secure, for example, the infra stack that is associated with the model or the orchestration layer on top of the model. But there's also this concept, which I'm really excited about, which is using AI to enable security. And so some ideas there could be you use AI to perform what a SOC or security operation center will do, which is analyzing all of the incoming signals, determining which ones are critical, which ones are less critical, and being able to answer them or respond to them, mitigate them and remediate that risk for your organization in a timely manner. Oftentimes that takes 10, 20 person teams to do all of that. But with an AI co-pilot, for example, that can help you synthesize the signal that can help you generate automated runbooks, that can help you maybe even tailor these runbooks to the specific signals that are coming in, perhaps that's the co-pilot that can enable your team to 10x and 100x itself. So that's the possibilities that I think has really been created by Gen AI. And at the same time, it forces us to think, just like the AI for X example, much more critically about what can we truly use AI to do besides just perfunctory tasks. I love that example because it's a classic situation where you've got this competition effectively between hackers and companies defending against cybersecurity attacks. And it's been such a big challenge for decades now, literally since the rise of the internet and networked computing in many ways. Do you have a sense yet for whether the offense, the hackers or the defense, the companies trying to protect their own systems from infiltration are going to come out ahead? Which side benefits most in this new world of generative AI? Well, I think first, it's frankly leveled the playing field. And without getting too philosophical here, which we can talk about this ad nauseum, there's also now AI using AI to secure AI, which if you look at the example that we just talked about, co-pilots for security operations, effectively, you may now use AI agents to go and enable other AI to catch what attackers are doing. And let me tell you, I'm sure the attackers are also not just resting on their laurels. There are, I'm sure, just like there were, for example, SaaS uh, solutions to help you write ransomware. Now they're probably even more advanced in that sense. And so, yes, it does become a bit of an arms race, which if you look at the policy expert, and recently, you know, I've started working with this woman called Melissa Hathaway, which if you look at her background, you know, advisor, cybersecurity advisor to several presidents. And a lot of what she writes about is how can we actually leverage technology policy to govern and to manage how AI for security is being developed. So there's tons of thinking in that space, and it's just evolving every day. So when you're looking for companies in particular to invest in, early stage companies as part of your role as a venture partner, How do you figure out, especially when you're talking about AI, what's real and what's just that thin wrapper that you're talking about? And do you need to find deeper value or are there sometimes valuable companies that are just applying that AI wrapper or putting a wrapper around AI in a novel way? Well, let me tell you, Todd, if you have an answer to that question, uh, please let me know. I will be right here 
sitting across the table from you, <laughs> hearing your answer, right? Because that's really the the you know million billion dollar question that's on everybody's mind today. But maybe let's talk about another example that kind of illustrates really this concept of thin wrapper or what's a durable moat, as we'll we'll call it in the product world or in the VC world, which is. Creativity suites, something that a lot of us use. We all have put together PowerPoint presentations or pitch decks or board meeting decks, what have you, and went through them when we're talking to a group of people. And so traditionally, obviously, that way has been using PowerPoint. Obviously, Canva, which shameless plug here, is a Felice's company. Oh. A lot of uh, you know users, not just designers. I myself have used Canva many, many times for advancing women in tech board meetings because it's just simple to use, lots of great templates. Now, a platform like that that has existed pre the Gen AI age, and of course, if you just do a simple Google search online right now, you'll see at least 10, maybe even more, 20, 50 companies that have sprung up doing AI for presentations. This whole, you can say a few words, maybe a sentence like, hey, create a PowerPoint or create a set of slides where I can give a history presentation, for example, on Napoleon. And I'll come up with some slides for you with uh, potentially weird-looking Gen AI-created images with uh, someone having three eyes. Maybe, right? (laughs) But those solutions now do exist. And so from an investor perspective, do you then end up doubling down on Canva? Or do you look at, for example, some of these net new solutions that were born in a generative AI age? And this is where I want to call out a a concept called virtuous data cycle, Hmm. right? It's something I made up. So basically, it's to capture the essence of platform that thrives off of user data will only get more valuable the more users and the more data it collects, which means that if you look at a company like Canva, which has been around for now almost a decade, it has so much user data, not just from all the designers, students, professionals, executives, and now corporations, Canva for business users, versus a net new company that has maybe leveraged the generative AI train and has come up maybe in the last six months. Who do you think will have much more data? And it's really who has access to proprietary data channels and that virtuous data cycle will win. And that's actually where now stepping back into areas in my own wheelhouse, that being security and infrastructure. If you look at companies that, again, have been born pre the generative AI age, they're now also training their own foundational models, maybe using 10, 20 years of, let's say, um, network intrusion data versus a net new company that will say, let's say, predict uh, network attacks using generative AI. Well, hmm, let's, you know, think about that here. Who's going to have that deep remote? And that represents a lot of the questions or sometimes debates that as investors, we will have when we think about the viability of these new companies. This gets in part into some of your Amazon Web Services background. I just got back from reInvent in Las Vegas. And Congratulations, you survived. I survived. So far, so far I survived. We'll see. Uh, Amazon is really banking on startups, developers differentiating themselves in this data area because one of their main services is Bedrock, which provides a variety of large language models. And so obviously you're not differentiating necessarily on the LLM. Some companies might, but certainly that might be more of a rarity. Instead, you're bringing a unique data set. And to your point, the incumbents, the people that have been around for a while, are going to have a natural strength in many ways because they have that deep history of data to draw upon as they're training or applying data to a new model. 
Yeah, and and this is where I think the the AWS strategy is is pretty clear in this area, which is, um, you know, as a as a company, it's not going to bet on just one model. And if you listen to some of the posts that Matt Wood, who's very very much a, a force in this space, you know, he told me not so long ago when we were having coffee, which is. You know, there's going to be a world or a reality that exists where there's going to be a catalog of various foundational models. And as an user, right, you can select which model you'd like to use based on parameters, based on maybe its unique skill set, and leverage AWS's infrastack to maybe build workflows on top of that. One exciting announcement that got me pretty jazzed up about the possibilities is the announcement AWS made during reInvent to vectorize everything. Hmm. So now you can do vector searches on top of for example, OpenSearch, DocumentDB. And this becomes, again, yet again, a fun exercise to think about, well, just how many startups like vector databases startups or vector search startups have come up in the last six to nine months, and how might they be affected by this announcement? You know, that one went over my head a little bit during the reInvent keynote, in part because I'm not an engineer, unlike you, you know, somebody who's gone through this. When you say vectorizing in that context, can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Sure. So again, I'm not an ML expert. So for those of you right. listening, please provide more depth here to what I'm about to say. But it's that idea that you can, for example, create maybe uh, do semantic search off of, let's say, files or images, right? So for example, find me all of the cat images, right, that show tabbies. But without, for example, a service to vectorize that or to create embeddings off of those images or unstructured files, you can't just use a search engine on top of that. So what I think this really does is it really opens up the stateful data that's on storage platforms like DocumentDB or OpenSearch, S3, maybe in the future as well, and opens all of that to generative AI workflows. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Nancy Wang of Felicis Ventures and Advancing Women in Tech. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. I've taken you deep down the AI rabbit hole here, <laughs> and that tends to happen these days. But I do have one more AI-specific sure. question for you. One of the promises of AI, particularly when you look at things like GitHub Copilot or Amazon Code Whisperer, is the potential for people who are not as technical to be able to do very technical things in part with the assistance of an AI copilot or artificial intelligence in general. Are you seeing that play out in any of the startups or the types of startup founders that you're running across in the people that you're talking to in your role as an investor? Yeah, so I'll draw upon this uh, very recently, in fact, from a less uh, AWS and VC perspective and more from a advancing women in tech, which is we recently partnered with the U.S. State Department. There was actually a you know, big press release that was issued from the agency itself talking about how we partnered together to train about 75 women entrepreneurs from nine different countries across Southeast Asia, East Asia countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, China, so on and so forth. 
And what was really compelling to see is how those women who did not come from engineering backgrounds, right? So everything that we just talked about, vector embeddings, you know, doing rag workflows, doing searches, that's not what they do on a day-to-day. However, they were able to create storefronts using generative AI. They were able to create e-commerce websites for their home goods using generative AI. And what that does is it lowers the barrier to entry for people, especially underrepresented groups that may not have access to all of the technologies that we do and tons of research articles and so on and so forth, to be able to create their own livelihood and be entrepreneurs. And that's the opportunity that I see of generative AI, again, leveling the playing field. Just like we talked before, Todd, of attackers versus blue team, red team. It also evens the playing field. Everyone's going to get smarter, which just means that there's going to be a birth of net new ideas, novel ideas that we have not seen yet. That's so cool. And to me, that's neat because it takes a tech savvy person. And I, frankly, I just sort of put myself in that realm, a non-engineer who has some aptitude for computers and tech. I was say, of all the uh, tech articles you've written so far, Todd, you are an engineer. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not though, but I'm not, I wasn't trained as a computer scientist. I've never been in a technical role. I feel like I can sit down and figure things out. And I think there's a lot of people in that realm and people who in the past would have need to have learned how to code can get farther down the path than they would have otherwise with the help of something like generative AI and these coding companions. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, actually, what's you know really interesting is, for example, even as I'm looking at you know net new companies and data engineering and whatnot, you know it has also been a while, I'll admit, since I've written code for a living. Very long, long time. I won't <laughs> tell you when. Um, but now you can go to ChatGPT and say, hey, can you do an ETL for this data set into that repository? And it'll come up with something very close. In fact, actually, the other day, a startup founder I work with had you know an application that he was working and he was spending hours just actually trying to depug because he hadn't coded in Python for a while. <laughs> and so he was like, you know what? Last resort. Let me go ask ChatGBT. And guess what? It actually pointed out, hey, you forgot the syntax here, right? Like that small thing prevented the application wow. from compiling. And so I just want to point that out as the, the power that now, you know, having these technologies can unlock, making people more efficient, which also probably brings us to the question that you probably ask, get asked a lot, which is, well, will AI take my job away? Yeah, it's a great question. I have my own answer, which I can give, but I want to hear yours first. <laughs> well, I think just like AI for X was quickly, I would say, taken over by ChatGPT and more uh, of these uh, AI-enabled chatbots. Um, I also have to say that we as a human workforce also have to get smarter. So where I see this, for example, designers, right, creating templates, if you can get from zero to one much faster, well, then your one to 100 output has to just be that much better. And that applies to developers as well. If, you know, you can leverage something like GBT to help you get to a basic framework, well, then the out, uh, the end output should be much faster and much better. So the bar, I think, for everyone has just just risen. It's interesting because I tend to think about that in terms of my own profession, journalism. And I grew up in local newspapers writing for the community newspaper in my hometown and then on the East Coast and all sorts of things. I could bore you for hours with my journalism stories. But that industry has already lost the jobs. And it's an example of an industry that could benefit from the increased efficiency, the ability to multiply your output, done in the right way, you got to be careful because there are hallucinations and bias mm -hmm. in these models that you 
have to check, but to the extent that a reporter in a local market can use generative AI as the intern that they can't afford or the assistant that they never had, it can be helpful. And to your point, I think there are risks for sure, but I love the example of entrepreneurs who can put up a storefront in a matter of probably a few hours, if that. And that wasn't possible before for them. So it's pretty cool. Exactly. It'll unlock new opportunities and, you know, force us all to to get a little bit smarter. Just like we saw in the Industrial Revolution, you know, certain jobs were, uh, let's say, replaced by machines. But also machines also gave rise to other jobs. And so I think especially in the world, and, you know, I also write, as you called out in the intro sometimes for Forbes Women, it just means that our own opinions and that human critical thinking just becomes so much more important which is, what's your hot take? Because now if we have essentially this technology that can synthesize across a thousand, a hundred thousand research papers for you, it can't think for you though. So that's the critical reasoning, the um, sort of the opinions, which are going to matter even more. I was thinking about this. I think the first time we talked, advancing women in tech was actually not called advancing women in tech, right? Was it advancing women in product? That is right. Yeah. That was how many years ago was that? It was, uh, well, when we spoke about advancing women in tech, formerly known as advancing women in product, that was back in 2018 and the organization was founded in 2016. So it has been, it's been a journey. And in fact, like even we have had to evolve, right? As an organization with or without AI, which is first off, as you aptly noted in the name, we now serve both product managers and engineers, given really the fluidity between the two roles and how often they collaborate together. Number two, actually, because we are one of the fortunate organizations to have survived COVID and still fulfilling our mission, right? We then also went uh, fully virtual for a while, which led to us creating our Coursera platform, which now educates about 30,000 learners every year on product management, technical program management, and engineering management. So in a way, we've had to adapt, but honestly, some of the adaptations have made us be able to fulfill our mission in a much bigger way. I was reading about, as you mentioned earlier, the collaboration with the State Department and the Coursera work, and my impression just as someone who was catching up with your organization after not having talked to you in a while was that it really redefined what you do. And in some ways, it sounds like it made it even more effective because it seemed to give you a real direction in terms of, hey, education is key here. You're making sure that women and underrepresented people in tech have the skills that they need to get the next job that they want or to get into the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And it also allowed us to serve a much broader audience because, again, before uh, COVID-19, we were doing in-person workshops in offices, you know, here in Seattle, in the Bay Area, Boston, other cities in Europe, as well as India. And you can only reach so many people and that the person who comes obviously has to have childcare potentially for that evening or has to ask work off potentially for that amount of time. And now by having this fully virtual platform, what we've enabled is people to really self-pace at their own pace. And as we've learned from COVID, one of the unintended effects, unfortunately, has been, especially the population of women in the workforce, has been impacted because women do tend to be the primary caregiver 
hours of a home. And that means they have even less time to further themselves or pick up new skills. And so this just allows them to have sort of that freedom and also the flexibility to continue progressing in their careers at the pace where they are able, which also goes to another development that uh, I've been involved in actually since we last spoke, Todd, which is the University of Pennsylvania's online programs. And so that actually happened as another offshoot of Coursera, and that's frankly how I got involved. It's actually Penn is one of the few universities that has a full master's of computer science degree program on Coursera. And the thinking and the intent behind that is much, very much similar to why we as AWIT put all of our content on Coursera, which is we wanted to reach the underrepresented students. And if you look at the enrollment rates for the online Masters of Computer Information Systems or uh, degree, it's nearly 40, 45% women enrollment, which is unheard of in person on campus. So then begs the question, what can we see in terms of that population, the underserved population's economic abilities, right, before and after, if we're able to provide them these opportunities to flexibly up-level themselves, to gain more skills, and frankly, to then go into more enriching careers. I'm talking this week with Nancy Wang of Felicis Ventures and Advancing Women in Tech, and we will be right back. It's encouraging to hear about progress. I know that there are still tons of challenges. If you look at the numbers of women in technology, if you look at the amount of investment, putting on your investor hat, obviously money flowing into startups created by women founders and run by women CEOs is not anywhere near. I think it's still in the single digits, if I understand correctly. As you look forward in that role as board chair of advancing women in tech, what are the key challenges you're facing? And are there other things comparable to things that you've done in terms of education that can move things forward in that realm? Yeah, I would say, look, if you if you look at, for example, the, the barriers, right, preventing underserved populations, women and other underrepresented groups from advancing in the corporate world, having the right skills is certainly an important one. And it's one of the key factors, because in order to be eligible for a job, obviously, there's many things you have to do, like interview, know the right people, but also have the right skills to be able to excel in the role. And so that's why one of the things we created was this content learning platform. Now, another aspect where I think with all of the new technologies, we can enable to happen much more quickly is the whole aspect of knowing the right people. I can say without a doubt that all of the career moves, except for maybe my very first job out of college, but even then that was because, you know, the deputy assistant secretary for the U.S. State Department happened to be on campus and I happened to attend a lecture that he was giving on the Affordable Care Act. And that's how I joined uh, the government service, actually, as part of my first job out college. But even that, right, it's all about who you know, who you're connecting with. Well, for women and underrepresented groups who have all of these other outside of work obligations as a primary caretaker, you're just not given that level of serendipity into running into who might be able to give you your next job or who might be able to vouch for you. So now with all these technologies where it's been normalized, it's very normal to say, hey, we can't meet in person, but let's hop on a video call, let's Zoom, or even now more and more of these mentoring platforms 
or AI-assisted platforms that can match you with someone that you might, for example, be able to learn a lot from who's maybe two or three years more senior in, in their career than in yours, which is tangible. So they can give you tactical advice to help you advance. Well, that's going to really add oil to the, uh, the flywheel that can help accelerate the careers for these people. You've been persistent in pursuing this challenge. Why is this an important issue to you personally? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, Todd. I feel like everyone has a purpose, something that they're super passionate about. And, you know, for one reason or another, uh, it has become my mantle. And I'll tell you exactly why this is so near and dear to me. And it really drives everything that I do, whether it's in my professional life as a technology executive, or in all of the social impact causes that I do, whether it's with Advancing Women in Tech, or Penn Engineering Online, or the State Department, and so on and so forth, or the startups that I work with as well, is really this thought behind even the playing field. And I'll say this because as, again, one of the few, I would say, women um, engineering graduates from undergrad, and then going into very traditionally very male-dominated industries such as infrastructure software, such as data protection. At Amazon and Google. (laughs) Yes, such as security, right? And, you know, this is not a good thing that I'm saying, but sometimes I did have to check myself, especially at reInvent, when I was the only woman in a room. And that felt very normal to me. And I had to check myself, wait, this is not normal. This is not what should happen, right? But when you go through your career, especially, you know, as a tech executive, again, if you look around, there are not many women in those roles across, you know, any company in this industry. And you ask the question, why? And, you know, when you look at women who are very smart, very eager, very capable, they're doing all the right things, and yet they can't advance, you can't help kind of bring some of that frustration and some of that sort of empathy upon yourself. And I'm a natural problem solver. That's just who I am. I've always taken things apart, you know, fixed things, put things back together, probably broken things in the process as well. But all of that to say, I see this as a problem that we need to solve as society, because if we truly want to advance, and especially using AI products as an example, if we want that to be representative of all of the users, not just people who happen to be building the models or who happen to be feeding the data, then we do need to bring up some of these underrepresented groups. And so that's what fuels me is evenling the playing field and making sure that, as I talk to other women execs, being the only woman in the room is not a norm that is going to exist much longer. How does it change your interactions with startups that you talk to in terms of just your own experience in that situation that you just described? I mean, you obviously have empathy for what they're going through. Does it change your approach as an investor? Well, I will say that I definitely have a soft spot for women founders and in particular technical women founders, because I understand that it's probably twice as hard to establish credibility to raise money because they're simply, you know, it's all a numbers game. People are more inclined to invest in people, profiles, or industries where they have made money before. It's not a biased thing. It's Well, it is a biased thing, but it's not personal. It's just a numbers game. So then when you go into a situation where there's not just not that many technical women founders out there, every data point counts. And so when companies don't work out, it becomes magnified. When it does work out, it also becomes magnified. People take longer with those funding decisions. And this is why there's groups, uh, amazing groups like All Raise out there, female founders groups that are trying to even the playing field there. And those are so, so worthy causes because 
if we want more women to start companies, to become executives, right, by starting companies, then we need to pave that path and give them sort of the, the scaffolding to be successful. So that's why as an investor, yes, I often do seek out technical women founders and do give them some extra time to help them with either product development or thinking through some of their product roadmap items. I was watching one video that you did. It might have been an Ask Me Anything through Penn, or it might have been one of the other videos that oh, you did. you've done a lot of I, research. I, was, well, I, I want to make sure <laughs> yeah. to have an informed conversation. You mentioned, I think, at one point that you would like to be CEO of a company at some point. That's right. Yes. Do you envision doing that as your own startup or joining an existing company? And I do want to say, I mean... If you look at Advancing Women in Tech, you've already founded an organization, even if it's not a for-profit company. I mean, you've been through this already in some ways. Do you see yourself starting your own company someday? Absolutely. That is the plan. Nice. Um, yes. And so part of this, again, going back to what drives me and, and what I'm passionate about is the ability to make change with that as a platform. Because, for example, if we just look at being a general manager at AWS, through that experience, you're suddenly in a role where you can make very some very critical hiring decisions about who do you want as your head of product? Who do you want as your head of engineering? Who do you want as your principal engineers? Who are you going to promote from within your team as people in these key roles? And I would say that is no coincidence that if we look back at the team, more than I would say 30, 35% of engineers and product managers were women within my organization. And a lot of that, just sharing anecdotally, were also driven by the candidate. Well, the general manager is a woman, so therefore, as a woman, I feel more comfortable working in this organization. And that's the power I see having more women in leadership roles is becomes a network effect, right? It's not just me, it's not just my friend here or the, this other person here, but it forms a community by which we can pull other people up with us. And so that's why I'm also passionate to eventually, if I'm uh, so lucky, right? Step into that situation where I'm also running my own company. I'm sure you've got a million ideas bouncing through your head and things that you've thought about for many years. How close are you to the idea that would prompt you to say, this is it, I'm going for it. Here's my business plan <laughs> and turn it around and basically go to your partners at Felicis and, and say, come on, fund me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, uh, you know, definitely uh, ideating at the moment. And you might hear some of the, the questions or the ideas come out from, for example, the podcast uh, series that will be starting uh, with uh, Ashish Papali, who's uh, currently the CISO or the CISO at Spot Nana. It's going to be called Defud Me. Defud Me. Exactly. Like F-U-D. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I like it. Um, so, you know, short and simple and very, you know, clear what we do. But uh, you'll definitely hear some of the ideas that, you know, I've been thinking about or founders, you know, who are executing on those ideas. Look, what I like to say is ideas are a dime a dozen. It really comes down to the execution. Well, you've obviously executed in many different roles over the years. And I, I think it would be interesting to see what you do. So I hope you do it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it will be. I think timing will be key. My colleague John Cook and I talked about this on a recent episode, just independent of AI, independent of all the other issues that we're talking about. What's your take on just the investment climate right now for a startup founder who's looking for funding? It seems to be tougher this year than it was last or the year before, and especially for companies that were heavily funded in the past. It's 
seems like it's become more difficult for them to raise funds, but that's my external impression. I'm curious what you're seeing actually in the middle of these conversations. Certainly, I'm sure some of us might have seen the the news on OpenView come out fairly recently. And I think that is um, sort of the reality that we're in, which is the cost of capital has increased. But certainly at Felicis and other funds, I'm sure here in Seattle, Madrona and in the Valley, the commitment be- still stays on founders, making sure that they are successful, that they can hit their ARR targets, for example, recruit the customers they need to recruit and be successful in their next uh, round of fundraising. I know, for example, at Felicis, we're very involved in helping our founders do that. But certainly, I would say as a founder with an idea, we talked a little bit early in this podcast conversation about thin wrappers. Certainly understand what is your moat or what is your differentiation. And look, it may not be on the tech. In fact, actually, recently I had a conversation with a founder who was doing a more, let's say, enterprise productivity SaaS application. And even though the differentiation or why they may win is not on the tech itself, it could still be a way in which you establish channel partnerships, something to do with how you're thinking about your go-to-market, for example. But make sure that you have that differentiation because it will certainly be asked during your pitch conversation. I think the other aspect is previously, I think, more gray area was okay during pitch conversations. But certainly now I think a lot more focus has been, well, what are you going to do with the dollars? What are the dollars funding? Is it training uh, models? Is it hiring technical talent? Is it going after more channel partners? Be very, I think, specific with what you're going to use the funds you've raised to do. So I think if you can establish those, plus have a good conviction around why you picked that idea, why that is the thing that you are here on this earth to do, I've seen founders still raise at a, at a pretty fast clip. And I'm sure Felice's other funds, Madrona here, have also made quite a few investments here in just this quarter. Last question. Is there an AI tool, just to take it full circle here, that you've incorporated into your work or your life that looking back, you would not be able to live without if it were taken away from you at this point? Probably notion, notion and also note taking. So certainly experiencing this more as uh, an investor than previously, of course, as an operator is you just meet so many more people on a daily basis. I might meet three or four new people, maybe catch up with uh, old colleagues and all of those, you know, are very interesting nuggets. They might be looking at new companies. They might be looking at, for example, new solutions or new technologies, maybe have hot takes on those technologies. And you don't want to disrupt the flow of conversation by taking notes. So there's a lot of new companies as well, besides, you know, just Notion that have come up in this note-taking productivity space, like Fireflies is an example, Otter AI, and probably many more that I'm not mentioning. But just the ability to record a conversation, provide a transcript, provide some key outtakes, right, follow-ups. I think there's, we're going to see many more incremental enhancements, maybe even auto-generated emails as follow-ups. That's part of the, the meeting, perhaps. But all of that means, again, as humans, we're going to get smarter and we're going to get more efficient. I have not used Notion. I'll have to try it out. I'm a heavy user of Otter AI for auto transcripts with interviews. And Otter recently introduced a Otter chat feature where you can interrogate the automated transcript. And that's been pretty significant for me in terms of productivity. So I'll have a interview or a discussion like this, I'll put it through the automated transcript and I'll say, 
remind me what Nancy said about advancing women in tech and its Coursera platform and how that plays into the State wow. Department. And it is uncanny. Wow. How good it is. Now, I have to be careful. Ultimately, the words in the stories have to be mine, mm-hmm. right? And if not, I need to transparently disclose that. However, just the ability, after talking with you for more than a half an hour, to be able to go back and just jog my own memory, that's where it gets down to having that superpower that I feel is the most exciting part of this new era that is also somewhat terrifying in some ways. <laughs> exactly. And to your point, how is this going to help enable your team to do so much more at GeekWire and to explore so many more stories? Like that's the really exciting aspect of this technology. Nancy Wang, thank you very much for coming in and talking with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. Nancy Wang is a venture partner at Felicis Ventures, founder and board chair of Advancing Women in Tech and a contributor to Forbes. See the show notes for articles and links related to her work. Thanks for listening. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Kurt Milton edited this show. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.